1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Constable Ichabod Crane, sent from New York to investigate murder in Sleepy Hollow. How much of your superiors explained to you? Only that the three were slain in open ground, their heads severed from their bodies. Taken by the headless horseman, taken back to hell. He rode a giant black steed to look at him, Major Blackburn Cole. Even today, the western woods is a haunted place where brave men will not venture. We have murders in New York without benefit of ghouls and goblins. You're a long way from New York, Constable. Is everyone in this village enthralled to superstition? We have many things to talk about, even in this backward place. Excuse my manner. I'm not used to it. Female company? The assassin is a man of flesh and blood, and I will discover him. Are you so certain of everything? Perhaps there's a bit of a witch in you, Katrina. Why do you say that? Because you've bewitched me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero, and as always, sitting sort of next to me in a Skype room in the ether is my good buddy, Sean Whalen. Great to be here. Good to have you here. And today, we are here at the behest of Mr. Trey Hooks, who heard me bad-mouthing the movie Sleepy Hollow during our Batman Returns review and said, Paul, you're an idiot. He didn't say in those words, but, he, you know, I, I could read between the lines. Uh, and said, you know, Sleepy Hollow is a good movie, and I want to come on and do its defense. And just by way of background, I saw Sleepy Hollow in the movies, or in the movie theater, excuse me, uh, and I was not very high on it. Uh, I... You know, I felt like it was too Tim Burton-ish. Uh, it was, you know, in, in other words, too stylistic. Uh, and I expected a little bit more. I expected a little bit more in the fantasy world along the lines of the Disney Legend of Sleepy Hollow and a little bit less of a slasher film. Uh, so I didn't get what I went there to see. 
Now, that said, I had not seen it since then, and I bad-mouthed it based on that one viewing. Uh, so when Trey suggested that we cover this, I rewatched it on, what is it, on HBO Max, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my opinion is better than it was then. I'm still not what I would call a fan of the movie, but I'm not a, quite as harsh on it as I was that day. Uh, all of that said, I'm going to pass the baton over to Trey and tell us your thoughts on this. Uh, <clears throat> well, thanks, Paul. First off, thanks for um, having me on to give somewhat of a de- defense for Sleepy Hollow. Um, like you, I saw it in the theater for the first time. Um, and I've just, I, I've just always enjoyed it. Um, it. Tim Burton is a very stylistic um, director. And I feel like this is one of the least Tim Burton-y of his movies. Um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have the same visual stylings as, for example, uh, Batman Returns or Beetlejuice, where you see a lot of the same uh, visual motifs in it. Um, it. With the exception of a few of the bit parts, he strayed away from his uh, regulars. I think this may have been, outside of Edward Scissorhands, this was uh, the second time he had worked uh, with Johnny Depp, so this wasn't seeing, you know, Helena Bonham Carter for the fourth time in a Tim Burton film, or Johnny Depp for the fourth time in a Tim Burton film. Um, so, you know, sometimes when he leans into his proclivities, like uh, Beetlejuice or um, Big Fish is actually my personal favorite uh, Tim Burton film, you can get a really excellent movie. Um Sometimes when he veers away from them like this, and uh, I would say even the 89 Batman, you can also get um, a, a really good movie. So I kind of like it for its lack of Tim Burtonness instead of for its Tim Burtonness, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think that does make sense. So before we start getting into details on it, uh, Sean, what's, what's your take on this movie? So like both of you, I saw it in the theater in 1999, I think it was. And I haven't seen it since. And that wasn't because I didn't like it. It was I saw it in the theater or had an enjoyable experience. My memories of it were always that I enjoyed the film. Um, it wasn't one that I like rushed out to purchase or anything like that. This was a pleasant surprise, actually, watching it again. Um, I didn't have bad memories of it. I had, you know, I remember seeing it and liking it just fine. But it, like I said, it wasn't one that I like needed to own when it came out or anything like that. I really liked the story. And I'm kind of, I think, more in line with you, Paul, as far as, like, My Sleepy Hollow is more of, well, I'll, I'll say My Sleepy Hollow is more of the Disney animated version. What I liked about this time around watching it, I just kind of watched it as a film, and um, I really enjoyed the story. It was as a compelling story. I didn't remember certain story beats, um, but that part um, really captivated me this time. The Tim Burton piece... What's interesting when Trey was talking through it, I think one of the things I liked about this one is I didn't feel like there were set pieces. Sometimes in Tim Burton films, which I actually like, I like Tim's styles, stylized set pieces that he puts in, but they wouldn't have fit for this film. I got more of an idea of a location and um, a large location with things happening in it, which was pretty important for this film because there's a lot of horseback riding. There's a lot of this sense of movement um, to vast locations being chased. <laughs> and if you feel like you're com- like tight in set pieces, you're not going to get that sense of, Oh my gosh, they're like going really quick, vast distances to try and get away from losing their heads. <laughs> so, which is, uh, which is a pretty critical component of this film. Uh, and I, I really kind of enjoyed just scale in this one, which isn't something I usually get from a Burton film, a sense of scale. Uh, I, I walked into this one kind of expecting myself to go, eh, it was an okay Tim Burton film. I really liked it. <laughs> it. And I was surprised by that. Not that I didn't the first time through, but I was surprised by how much this felt fresh to me this time around versus, um, I think, having seen it in 99. 
So it was an, it was an interesting viewing this time. All right. Um, yeah, I like I said, I, I I'm more forgiving of it today than I was uh, 23 years ago, 24 years ago. My God, I can't believe how much how time goes by. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, I, I I I think the first thing that threw me off was having having Ichabod Crane being a uh, like a CSI investigator instead of a school teacher. Uh, and, you know, I have to admit that I don't have a great deal of familiarity with the source material, you know, Washington Irving's short story. Um, so I don't even remember. I believe he was a school teacher in that as well. But, you know, I, I again, I, it's not my my concern with the or not concern, but my uh, dis- uncomfort, uncomfortability discomfort, whatever word you want to use there, uh, with the changes is more the changes from the Bing Crosby narrated version by Disney than it is the original source material. Uh, It felt like we were taking a very modern character and putting him into a, into a, into a, you know, the, I guess the late 1800s. So that just felt off to me to start. And this this movie, I've said in the past, it committed to me what, what is the ultimate sin of having a child killed by the killer in the movie. Uh, and that really turned me off. When that happened in the movie, it really made me just uncomfortable being there watching it anymore. Uh, and it... it closed my mind i'm you know i'm going to open i'm going to admit that i was a little closed-minded about it because that just disturbed me that child should have gotten away somehow and if that had happened i think i would have walked away a little less down on the movie than i was um you know it's probably a a a silly standard to go by because it is pure fiction and it is purely you know no 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 child they could have put this thing at the end no children were harmed in the filming of this movie (laughs) and it would have been okay uh but but for some reason just i you know (laughs) i i just found that very disturbing i really did and it bothered me uh so we'll we'll go for that before we start going into some other things sure i I I understand that viewpoint. I will give Burton credit. There's a lot of ambiguity and subtlety in that scene. In a film with a lot of um, viscera, and we can talk about that, um, uh, they did not go there with the scene with the kid hiding under the floorboard. So I, I, I appreciated that it was implied and not shown. Mm. I... I- I agree with that part that um, I really like that it was implied and not shown Um, because it was as far as a scary scene and a disturbing scene, which is what it was meant to be. It certainly accomplished that goal. And and I don't know, Paul, that I think I think one of the things about this conversation that's great is I think we have three unique perspectives to this film because I don't I think I'm kind of in I think I might be a little bit in between the two of you as far as um, my viewing of it. But that part, um, sh- I it didn't. I don't think because I, I didn't see it. I think if you had shown that and gone for the gore factor of showing that, I'd be in a very different place with that scene. Yeah, I appreciated the fact that they showed both parents in that sequence, and I mean that was really clear, um, especially with the fact that we saw the mom through the floorboards. Um, they showed the chase of the child. And left it at that. And I think that was that was a smart choice in that particular sequence. I, I want to touch on one thing, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I want to touch on one thing you said before. Uh, I did read up on how this linked to the original source material. And this is, out of the adaptations out there, I think the adaptation that is least like the original source material Whereas the Disney one is, which um, they actually made a point in the article that I read to say, because that's not usually a Disney thing. They usually do. Disney kind of takes things and Disney-fies it. And I love Disney. I'm, that's one of the things I like about them. But in this case, I get Disney stuck pretty close to the original source material. And it actually is one of the adaptations that they tout as being closest to the original story. So 
if you're not liking the fact that it kind of veers off from the school teacher and things like that, this is a interpretation of Sleepy Hollow versus a direct adaptation. And and actually, he takes um, one of the things they talk about is that Burton takes it beyond the original source material, um, which you either like or you don't, uh, depending on how that piece goes. But um, that's that's something it's worth noting. Yeah, and. I like it because it makes it stand out to me. Um, you, you know, the the one difference between um, the Disney version and the source material is the source material is kind of a ghost story that ends with the missing person case of Ichabod Crane, if you will. Nobody has seen him since. And Disney gives you that strongly implied happy ending that he ended up in another town with a nice plump farm wife and, you know, a, a good, um, a, a good life. So, you know, I, I liked that they made this a mystery. I liked kind of the dawning of the age of, uh, reason, if you will. I, I even liked the gore and I'm not a gore hound, but I, I thought, it was a nice juxtaposition to this um, fussy, orderly, um, clean um, constable who was clearly a fish out of water. And I thought part of the fish out of water was being someone um, who seemed so um, off-put by mess have what at that time was a very messy job. See, now, I think, and, and I'm going to try and not be so critical moving forward after I make my last uh, point of why I, why I found this disappointing. I, I believe, looking back on it, that being familiar with the Disney version and being familiar with what, uh, what Tim Bird, Burton had done in the past with Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and Batman... Uh, I expected a more fantastical uh, adaptation of what Disney had done. But instead of getting that, I got what was essentially a very stylistic slasher movie. Uh, and that, I think, is really you know, the subversion of my expectations, which I usually find to be charming when it's done, in this instance turned me off to some extent because I didn't get that fantastic journey that I was looking for. So a lot of my criticism is not so much based on, oh, this is a bad movie, so as, as it is, this isn't the movie I wanted. Mm-hmm. So now that said... Uh, in the casting in the movie, I'm not a huge Johnny Depp fan, but I'm also not a huge Johnny Depp detractor. So it's kind of like it was okay to put him as Ichabod Crane. I think I would have gone for somebody a little older in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you know somebody a, a little bit more nerdy, more you know, much like the original movie. Even in the CSI way that they're presenting him, I think it, it would have been more. I don't know. It just would have felt more natural coming out of somebody probably five to ten years older than what he was when he made this movie um but other than that i thought he was fairly good in the role um i liked probably more than 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 you know the main characters like christina ritchie didn't really do anything much for me uh miranda richardson was you know she was fine uh but the ones i got a kick out of were much more the the small cameo type roles uh you know we got mm-hmm. to see christopher walken as the uh hessian soldier who becomes the the headless horseman we get to see ray park as the headless horseman uh, although we never actually see ray park mm-hmm. uh you know uh, martin landau having a small part uh what's his name uh, senator palpatine having a part uh and and uh what's his name uh the uh, Harry Potter's uncle having a part, you know, different people who, who I've seen in other things since uh, or before uh, that I got just got a kick out of, which, again, does not speak too well for how engaged I was in the movie, because I'm paying attention to who the actors are and, and oh, there's so and so there's so and so and not being pulled into the actual film. And maybe that's part of my problem, too. What do you well, guys think? Well, 
Well, n- no, the <clears throat> the leaders of the town is a murderer's row of character actor talent, <laughs> you, you know. Um, and, and I'll throw in there, you know, you had Christopher Lee as the judge who dispatches him um, right. on the case, right? Um, <clears throat> I liked Johnny Depp in this. I, I thought he played the role well. Um, we're in this stage in his career before, especially in the Burton films, before everything is oddness for oddity's sake. Um, so um, I, I appreciated that. You know, really, the only negative casting for me, and I don't know so much that it is the acting performance as much as um, the sto- this version of the story almost doesn't have a need for the character. And it is, you know, um, one of the criticisms I do have of the film, and that's um, Casper Van Dien as Brom. You almost don't need Brom in this story. And that's the one part to where I'm like, okay, but Brom's kind of got to be a bigger part of the story. The, the motivation to be the bully to Johnny Depp, like it was mainly just because it was clear that there was interest in Christina Ricci's character. And, mm-hmm. but I mean, it was very quick, which it was funny. One of the things that I actually like about this film, we're in a day and age right now where remakes are kind of like you blink and there's another remake out there. Some are really good. Some are kind of, why did you do this? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, what I really liked about this one was the fact that we didn't do a lazy remake where it was, there's no purpose to it. In this case, there was a story being told, whether you liked it or not. I mean, that's okay. Um, that's one of the nice things about film is it's okay to have different opinions on, on the film that you just saw. But in this case, I, I was pleasantly surprised because I've seen the animated version quite recently. And I was pleasantly surprised at how different this felt and valid this felt as a movie. Johnny Depp, I actually quite, as the film started, I was kind of like, oh, Johnny Depp in a Tim Burton film again. And I mean, I was kind of like, I was in that, I was in that place where this, it's with Danny Elfman's music, which I love Danny Elfman. So, so there's certain things I'm going to say right now that make it sound like I don't like these people. I do. Um, I, I heard Danny Elfman's music. The initial set pieces from uh, Tim Burton, I was kind of like, okay, this is this is feeling very samey, and then it didn't. There came a point where all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he's transporting me somewhere else. Johnny Depp, one of the things I thought that he did really well was socially awkward, and, and um, mm-hmm. like he didn't fit in. And it was very apparent in his interactions. You mentioned the supporting cast, Paul. I think that supporting cast was critical to my enjoyment of this film because of their interplays with him. Um, when he walks into a room, it's weird. <laughs> and, it, and, it need, and it needs to be because he's this awkward guy, which is Ichabod Crane. And that was something that I was like, oh, Johnny Depp's kind of doing something a little different here. Where I like the relationship with Christina Ricci is it's not your traditional relationship. He's awkward and weird and but interesting. Like there's enough he's a CSI guy, there's like something to him that she's drawn to cuz she's weird too. <laughs> but she's a different <laughs> kind of weird. And it's either you, it's either that's something you latch onto and it's okay if you don't, but it was something I did latch onto this time. I'm like, "Oh, she's kind of an odd duck too and she's you know, later on in the film, you find out she's painting stuff under his bed, and it's like, <laughs> it's like uh, which, I mean, were all things that gave her her own little quirk, and she connected with him, and it's where there comes a point in time where she, he's pushing her away, or almost not including her, because it's kind of the nature of the job, but also because she's so close to his suspect <laughs> that she's really hurt by it. Because I think she finally found her person, and he's kind of like, I, I think you and your dad, like, there's something going on here, and you guys are involved. <laughs> Which was, I thought, a really well done story beat in this one. Uh, it's not the story I was looking for from the animated version, but I liked the 
I was getting drawn into the mystery because I didn't remember it from 99. I didn't remember what the, I knew the basis of the story, but I didn't remember the twists and turns along the way with the stepmom and things like that. And I found myself engaged in that this time around because of the supporting cast though, Paul, I think you're making an interesting point about the other players that were involved in this. I think they were, even though they seem like small parts, they're essential. If you don't have those players in there right now, the stuff that I'm talking about doesn't really matter because they are the ones that are kind of setting the stage. And they're also kind of like a a good clue, like mystery. You've got to be looking at each of them, trying to figure out who done it. (laughs) Cause there's another who done it besides our headless horseman. And it's one of them. And we don't know early on who that's going to be. I didn't remember who it was. I should say, Full disclosure, I didn't remember how that went from '99, so that part I found I found the mystery intriguing. Yeah, I think my favorite Johnny Depp performance or scene in this is after he has encountered the Hessian for the first time, and he's recovering in the bedroom, and uh, Michael Gambon and Miranda Richardson, Christina Ricci go to check up on him, and he's like, "It was the headless horseman." And they're like, "Yeah, we we know, no, but 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 he was he was real, and he was headless." Uh, <laughs> yes, we we told you this <laughs> to, to where his entire worldview um, just got upended. Um, the other thing that I think worked here, and it's it Burton's one of those directors, and I don't know anything about his personal life, but much like Spielberg, he kind of goes back to um, uh, parental issues. And I also thought this was the only time in his films um, where he adapted something and parental issues weren't already part of the story. So I'm excluding Batman 89, right? The parental issues are imprinted in Batman's DNA. <laughs> um, but but I thought the backstory with Ichabod's mother and dad worked here. Whereas, for example, the backstory that he tried to tack on Willy Wonka did not. Mm, mm-hmm. I think it goes back to some of what Paul was saying. So there is an element of what Paul's saying that I th- at least I felt was true. It is a slasher flick. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is that's there's a truth to that piece. Um, I liked sometimes with your slasher fic- flicks, what ends up happening is it focuses too much on the slasher portion and not enough on the story to draw you in to continue following through. Um, whereas I felt like this had a good balance of story. I like that was clearly slasher flick stuff, too, because where it goes with the mother is pretty disturbing. <laughs> I mean, and um, you there's a mystery to that, too, because we kind of know from what happens early on. And you can like they could have left that one in our heads and that would have been OK. But they go there. <laughs> I mean, and they, they build you there slowly through the disturbing dreams that Ichabod is having. And it's something where it's almost like a repressed childhood memory. And that's a piece where he's kind of connecting with Christina Ricci because when he there's, you know, he wakes up at one point in time and she's there and uh, embraces him and like is trying to be that comfort for it, which I thought that was a good scene because we saw what he was going through and saw that she was patient enough to kind of go, okay, this odd duck just woke up screaming and uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, have this chance to connect with him there. But, boy, what they did with the mother was disturbing. But right f- for a slasher flick, it worked. That part I, that part I liked. Um, now, had I been going looking for a slasher flick, I might have felt differently about that. Well, and I... Mm-hmm. So, I agree. I both agree and I disagree with it. As a slasher flick, I I guess objectively it kind of is. The whole mystery angle puts it more on 
these are poor comparisons, so I'm just going to say up front. But the procedural aspect gives me more Seven and Silence of the Lamb vibes than, like, Halloween vibes. And I'm not an expert on um, Giallo at, at all, but, you know, I've, I listened to the vault of startling tales of terror or what i can't remember what the full title of it is paul but you know i i've heard those guys talk about those um italian films where they just blurt you know spurt the blood like red temper paint and that had this mm -hmm. feel to me like we weren't supposed it's so over the top we're not supposed to take it seriously Trey, here's where I think your comparisons are good. When you were saying Seven and you were saying Sounds of the Lambs, I was nodding along the way and listening to you because I think what I think what you're touching on is what worked for me. It's not one kind of film. There's elements, like appropriate elements, of certain kinds of films in there that made this one kind of feel cool. Um, mm -hmm. I, I agree it's not a straight-up slasher flick. And, and There's elements of slasher flick in it, though. Um, which yeah. I can see Paul's point where if you're not walking and looking for that, that's going to be potentially off-putting to you. And clearly, in Paul's case, it was. Um, so I get that. Um, what I, I like about the film is what you're talking about. I think when you put in the vibes of Seven, when you put in the vibes of Silence of the Lambs, that's where the story comes from that I, that I really enjoyed instead of it being just brutality for brutality's sake because that you lose the, you lose a story. In that, and I need yeah. the I need the story beats in this one. It was the the part that I will say. I remember this from '99, and I did feel that this time. This isn't my Sleepy Hollow because right. of the fact that it's uh, where it veers off from the source material. But I actually like. It's either you like that or you don't, and there's no right or wrong answer to that. I liked that because I got my Sleepy Hollow in the Disney version that I really dig. This one's, like, doing something that makes it worth seeing. <laughs> I think is... No, you, 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 no I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Sean. I, I love the Disney version. Mm -hmm. um, but the Disney version makes the cheap good times version superfluous. It makes the Hallmark movie superfluous. It makes the um, uh, uh, Shelley Duvall's fairy tales in theater. There was an offshoot that was like folklore, right? Um, and you were speaking about a good Ichabod Crane casting, Paul. That one had Jeff Goldblum in it, and that's probably the best live action casting Absolutely. you could do. <laughs> um, I, I uh, but can't, it can't disagree with you there. It, it kind of makes all of those versions. Um, superfluous because they are just retelling, you know, that same story with the exact same beats. The fact that this did something new, um, it may not land for everybody, but it gives it a reason to exist. See now, I uh, when when we talk about comparisons to Silence of the Lambs and Seven, uh, it's it's strange because they are they get very different initial feelings out of me when you talk about them. Uh, Seven is, by its very nature and intentionally so, a movie that makes me very uncomfortable when I'm watching it. Um, I didn't really enjoy Seven. <laughs> it's not because it's not a good movie. It's because I don't like that uncomfortable feeling. Um, this movie might have had a little bit of that vibe to it. Silence of the Lambs I think is, you know, we've never done Silence of the Lambs on here. We may do it eventually one day. Who knows? Uh, I'll tell you now before we even think about it, I'm going to rate Silence of the Lambs as Jaws if we ever do it. I think Silence of the Lambs is a great movie. Uh, and there's a certain elegance to it. And I think it's really mostly just based on Anthony Hopkins' performance more than anything else. Uh, but that had the element of it that took it out of that totally feeling uncomfortable and immersing myself in the movie. And not that I felt comfortable with the character of Hannibal Lecter in any way, but there was something about that movie that just transcended the level of slasher. Uh, I don't feel like this movie transcended slasher. I think it is slasher. Uh, I think 
the Tim Burtonness of it by making it a period piece and making it somewhat stylistic is an attempt to transcend slasher. Uh, and I think it either works for you or it doesn't. For me, I was looking for... It, 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 I'm, I'm kind of almost contradicting myself because I've talked about how much I've grown to grown tired of the Tim Burton stylisticness in certain movies, and I'm sitting here telling you I wish he had just gone for that stylisticness and uh, and and given us this fantastical movie as opposed to going for that slasher flick. But that's really kind of what I'm saying, even though it contradicts some of the things that I've said in the past. Um. Like I said, it, it, there's, there's an uncomfortable nature to this movie that I didn't anticipate and didn't want. Uh, and I think that's that's ultimately where my uh, my problem lies. It's not to sit here and say it's a bad movie. Uh, I don't think the direction is bad. I don't think the acting is bad. I probably would cast my lead a little differently, as I said, but I don't think he gives a bad performance. Um, it's just... it. I, I think... Tim Burton got what he was shooting for in this. I just wanted him to shoot differently. I wanted him. To, I wanted his aim to be different. What did you guys think about Christopher Walken as the Horseman? We kind of haven't. We've talked about like the cat. I think everybody around the Horseman, but we haven't really talked about him because there's a backstory that's developed there for the Horseman in this, and um, and and a and a present day story for the Horseman that's been developed in this one. What did you guys think about him? Because um, obviously it's it's him when he has a head that we see him the rest of the time. I don't know who that was. <laughs> that may have been him, may not have been, but uh, without the head, it's Ray Park. Oh, is it? Yes. Yeah, it's Ray Park without the head. Yeah. I I, I uh, thought the casting of Christopher Walken was excellent. To be honest with you, uh, I thought you know I mean. It's, it's it's you know you don't get to hear the uh, the, the Christopher Walken uh, talking during it, but just just the facial expressions and everything. Uh, you know, I thought I thought he, he was perfect for it. I I don't think he even stood out as being Christopher Walken per se. Uh, I, I think you could walk away from this movie and not realize you saw Christopher Walken in it. Uh, but just the same, I thought he he had that fierceness in his look. Uh, when at the end of the movie, when 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 he is kind of regenerated, the looks on his face, you know, you could see he's acting the part there, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, he's 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 giving you a lot in his expression. So I I really liked that casting, I have to say. And I always think silent acting is harder than spoken dialogue, and he is a hundred percent silent acting in this role and um that really makes me feel good that you said that paul because like one of your critiques on batman returns i think was that max shrek was kind of christopher walken being christopher walken and i think it, this would be a part that would be really easy to phone in and he didn't yeah i agree i i he was one of the highlights of the movie to me he came off as the horseman not a parody of himself which I think yep. is, is a really critical, like when I first saw him, I, because I, I, I hadn't seen it since 99, I'm like, oh, I don't, did I like him? In this? <laughs> and uh, what really stood out for me watching it this time around was actually the fact that he didn't say anything. I actually thought that was brilliant because he, seeing him act that way was kind of a chance to see him show some range that, and I love Christopher Walken, by the way, so that comment isn't a dig on him. It's just more of a, wow, like he's going to this a very different way than I'm used to seeing him. And his conveying everything through facial expressions, and um, it just worked great. And the teeth, I thought, was a that, the oh, yeah. that they, they uh, etched his teeth. He seemed fierce. There's, it's, there's something about what you don't tell that is creepier than sometimes what you do and that i there's certain things that they made choices of in this film even the disturbing sequence we talked about earlier with the child i didn't need i did not want to nor did i need to see that when you go there the way that they did you know i mean there's there's a part of you can even say maybe the kid did escape <laughs> at some level because because mm -hmm. we don't know but 
I was pretty clear that I thought that the kid didn't, um, but I did not need to see that. You don't need to show me that. You don't need to disturb me, you know, for the sake of disturbing me. What you didn't show me kind of gave that to me. Walken's acting, though, was a great example of you don't need dialogue there. You need somebody who's capable of delivering that performance without doing it, because I don't want to in that moment think it's Christopher Walken. I want to think it's the horseman. And, yeah, and, and you think it was the horseman. And that is something that contradicts what I said earlier, uh, because earlier I was saying, oh, yeah, there's Martin Landau. Oh, there's this guy. There's, you know, there's, there's Christopher Lee. There's whatever. I didn't say, oh, there's Christopher, Christopher Walken. Like I said, you could walk away from this movie not even realizing that you saw Christopher Walken in it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But but he, he played an essential part in what went on, and uh, and I thought he did so really, really well. So, you know, hats off to that. And we're here's the thing: we're not going to him until later part of the discussion. By the way, what about the horseman? <laughs> I, mean, kind of a, I mean, when you think about it, most of our conversations focused on just about everybody else because of what you're saying, Paul. I think it was one of those things where it's kind of, oh yeah. By the way, Christopher Walken's in this thing. <laughs> I, I I really appreciate subtlety in acting. I appreciate when people can mm-hmm. get a point across without. You know, and and again, there's contradictions because there's certain parts where you know in certain movies where somebody chewed up the scenery, and I think it was wonderful because it called for that. But when when a part when the obvious choice seems to be to chew up the scenery, and the actor doesn't, and then ends up being more effective because they did that. When I see that happen, I think that's just you know, tremendous. Uh, and, you know, we, we mentioned earlier Silence of the Lambs. I think that's what Anthony Hopkins did as Hannibal Lecter. He he really could have been, you know, over the top, hammy, emoting and doing all sorts of stuff. But he chose to pull pull back and, and just be creepy in his own way. And I thought that was really good. In Seven, I think Kevin, uh, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Spacey did the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, that was almost his Hannibal Lecter. Uh, so, you know, there, there's... When when it when it can be done right, when you have an actor that's got the ability to do that, and then they do it, and again we're talking about subverting expectations to some extent, but taking a part that screams out to be hammy, and they choose to not be hammy, and then they pull it off really well, those are the ones that always you walk away and you say, you know, that was a great performance, and I, you know, it's a small part. Uh, where, you know, he's not going to get best actor for his role as the headless horseman or actually as the Hessian because he the headless horseman is Ray Park. Uh, mm-hmm. But but, you know, ha- kudos to him for, for the way he chose to play it or the way Burton got him to play it. Here's where the film messed with me. We're, so we're talking about like this horrible scene earlier with the child. Right. OK. And let's mm-hmm. so how disturbing the, the horseman did that. By the end of the movie. I'm cheering because the horseman was wronged because he took the the head, his head was taken away and the horrible stuff that Miranda Richardson's character was doing to him. Like, yeah, let's make this right. Let's get this head back to this horseman because he deserves to have his head back and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like sitting here back. What a contradiction this is because this guy did some really disturbing horror. Not, I mean, throughout his history, like forget about when they killed him before they killed him. This guy was a like, just wrecking people and were and destroying worlds. <laughs> now all of a sudden you've got him coming back and being controlled by somebody, and somehow I'm feeling that he's been wronged. <laughs> you, you're, you're cheering for him when he drags her away as his bride yes. at the end. <laughs> yeah, and I shouldn't be cheering for him at all. He's terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, that that is that is a really well done turnaround because you know you, you you see it in more often in, in long long form storytelling and t- television shows you know and i can go to breaking bad or uh you know the sopranos or whatever where where they try to give a bad guy a redemptive arc of some sort or the, the audience expects a redemptive art of some sort. Maybe they're not going to actually, uh, you know, like in Breaking Bad, they really didn't try to give you a redemptive arc. But you do get to a point where you say, this person cannot be redeemed. And then you even see it in, in some of the Star Wars movies, you know, with Darth Vader having a little redemption at the end. Or, or 
I can't even think, Kylo Ren, uh, you know, them trying to, and, and we can argue about the level of success that they reached in those redemptions. But in this one, we're talking about somebody who's loathsome, <laughs> and then we, you know, they can turn us around at least for a minute and have him saying, yes, go ahead, do that. But, you know, it's part of it is he, he's not... You know, he he doesn't get his head and he's going off to live happily ever after as a, a uh, redeemed murderer. He's taking her down to hell with him. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not like he's, you know, re, you know, getting the, uh, the fruits of, of victory here. He's just well, taking well, her for her, her necessary. That she, she deserves every bad thing that he gets. And I think, I think him taking that away like taking her with him is like him taking a Lunchables with him. Like it's like he's got this thing now that's going to preoccupy him. It's very sweet. <laughs> well, there's there, there, there's one other relationship that I I want to bring up that we haven't um, touched on because it's one of the pieces of the film that I really like, and that is the growing bond and friendship between Ichabod Crane and Young Maslin. I think Young Maslin's the best character that they added. I think he's like the one great add to the mythos, if you will, from this version. I don't I necessarily like disagree, but I don't have a lot to add on that point. So I'm going to piss you right over the shoulder on that. <laughs> I'm with you on that beat being something that I, I latched on to this time. Because uh, I didn't, rem- that was something I didn't even remember being a thing. Um, and what I liked is that he immediate didn't immediately like bond on to him like a parental figure or something like that. He was kind of like the you know now I'm a dad all of a sudden I don't want to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean he was seeing the writing on the wall where this poor kid who's lost everything now because his his mom's already gone because that was where you know Ichabod was trying to point him back to saying you still got your mom and he's like no I don't <laughs> and he's he's alone and sees Ichabod as being this kind of person that could potentially be somebody he's like I'll work for you you know I'll be your you know servant or whatever because he's looking for survival at this point because he doesn't he's like what's next for me and Ichabod's like I, I don't want to open this doorway. And I actually like the subtle way that they did that. You know, it was all done mm-hmm. through acting and through his reaction. And, you know, you read a lot into the, And that's something I thought the film did well. There's certain pieces where they aren't explicit. They let the reaction of the actors, they let the storytelling kind of guide you through things. And I liked him a lot because I liked mm-hmm. that it was the events of the story that led Ichabod to start gradually realizing that this kid's got value. This is something that could not only enhance this case, which was the first place that it goes, but now it, it's also somebody who, wow, we've been through this thing together and I actually like this kid. And let's kind of figure well, out what life's going to be like for all of us moving forward together. It will. And he, he pushes Ichabod forward. He's the one who pushes. You've got to deal with your feelings for Katrina. We, we've got to get justice for this town. He, he's kind of the one who holds Ichabod um, a- accountable. And in no way is this film crying out for a sequel. And there's mm-hmm. part of me that wants to see the next case of... Ichabod, Katrina, and Maslin. He's a forensic scientist. She's a witch. Together they fight crime. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we can do a Tim Burton movie without talking about Danny Elfman. What did you guys think of the score? I'm going to tell you, I thought it, it varied from really good to really just regurgitating his old sounds. Uh, so it was a very, very inconsistent score as far as I was concerned. Um, but you know, it, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me. I don't think this is a score that I would find myself ever listening to as I'm driving along. Um, there were parts of it where I thought it was strong, but I didn't think it was consistently strong. Yeah, I, I think a great, I think the hallmark of a great score is you can listen to it separate from the film. And, that's and I always, don't think the, that's one, always what I apply to it. Could I sit in the car yeah. and just put on this score and be driving along and, and enjoy listening to it? And I don't do that 
too often. I do it occasionally, but not too often. But I still always do it in my mind when I'm when I'm trying to rate the score. I agree with you totally on that. So, uh, on that on that account, it doesn't hold up. But I I never found it to be ob- uh, obtrusive, and I never felt like it fought the film. Agreed. What did you think, Sean? I felt it enhanced the appropriate intense sequences. So music a lot of times will take you to emotional places, and I felt it did that. I'm actually, one of the things you said earlier, Paul, um, I, I agree with, but I don't think it was Elfman's score that did this. I think it was just the whole, like, Tim Burton vibe. At the beginning, and I, I, by the way, I want to be clear, I love Tim Burton. So I'm gonna, but I'm gonna say at the beginning of this film, I felt like this is another Tim Burton film, um, and that isn't just the score. It was the score. It was the atmosphere, the tone initially, until it then surprised me and kind of did a whole bunch of different things. And that's where I think the score did it too. I totally agree with both of you. Like this isn't one I'm like. I've got Apple Music. It's like the ease of me. Like, I don't have to buy it. I can just click on it and, you know, I'm able to listen to it. This isn't one that I'm going to sit there and go, I've got to listen to this one again, which says a lot when I'm saying it's free and I don't care. I wouldn't not listen to it, but it's not one that I'm going to, like, seek out and go, this was an essential listen. But I thought it did serve there's sequences where music enhances it. And I felt that there were sequences where Danny Elfman's music, I I think Danny Elfman's brilliant. I felt there were sequences where he clearly in the score was enhancing what was going on there, but not to the point where I'm like sitting there going, there's this memorable beat that I've got to, there's this sequence is the one that I've got to have listening to on a, on a repeat loop. And that's, other than, other than that, I thought it was a good score. Yeah, I, I don't think any of us are really disagreeing with each other on that mm-hmm. level. So, having gone through the cast, the story, the score, is there anything else, any other defense you'd like to raise, Trey, or anything that either of you think is an important aspect of the film that we missed out on? No, I think we've covered it all. Sean? I'm good. No, this was uh, a, a fun discussion. Okay, so then we get to the rating point, and I'm, I'm going to go first, which, you know, I usually end up doing anyway. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, I enjoyed this more than my memory of it was. Um, you're, you're suggesting that we revisit this 20-some-odd uh, years after I first saw it. It was probably a worthwhile thing. I wouldn't ask out again to watch it necessarily. Uh, I enjoyed it more than I did the first time, but I've still, and I, th- I think that that was based more on, I was watching it as a movie with no expectations as that, that could get cr- crushed on the rocks below. Uh, you know, I, I knew what to expect. So I was watching it more for the story elements, the acting and all of that. And I thought it was all well put together. That said, it really just wasn't my kind of movie. So my my actual rating stays the same, but I do think more of it than I thought before. So I'm going to still say it's a Jaws 3 for me because I don't see myself wanting to see it again. But I am no longer of a mind that I'm going to use this as an example of what is wrong with Tim Burton because it, I don't think it is an example of what's wrong with Tim Burton. I think now uh, I'm going to have to lean on Planet of the Apes from 2000 as my example of where Tim Burton went awry. Uh, and even that one, when we did it on here, I thought more highly of it in a second viewing than I had the first time I saw it. So for what it's said, I, you know, for what it's worth, I think Tim Burton is, is an excellent, excellent filmmaker. I just think he's too self-indulgent sometimes. And that's really all it comes down to for me. This one was a high Jaws 2 for me, and I'm surprised by that. Um, I was expecting to walk in for this one to be a Jaws 3 as well, because it had been 99. I saw it in the theater. It didn't really – it wasn't one that I remembered. You know, I, mean, I, I mean, I remembered some basics of it, but um, one of the things that I found that I really enjoyed about this one was the mystery. And I'm, I, I benefited from the fact that I haven't seen it since 99. So I was kind of seeing it fresh, and I didn't remember a lot of the mystery elements. And that, to me, is where it works. Um, I don't, my wife 
had mentioned when I mentioned that we were doing this, um, she didn't have a chance to watch it with me, but she wants to see it. I'm not. I'm sitting here going, I'd, I'd like to see it again. Um, part of the joy of it, though, was not knowing. And so it's it's a unique film in the sense that usually my Jaws twos or Jaws are when it's rewatchability. There's certain kinds of films though when it's a mystery that half of the joy of it is what you don't know and having that unfold. So I really liked this one. Um, I enjoyed the mystery of it um, more than I thought I was going to. And there were some character beats this time around that I didn't even remember being a thing that um, I enjoyed. I was I was surprised by it. Uh, it's one I'd recommend. Um, if you haven't seen this one, I'd recommend seeing it to get because I can I see it being something where you're going to fall in a certain category on this one. You're either going to really enjoy it or, you know, it, it might not be your cup of tea. It's a different sort of Burton film. And I, I, I liked it for that purpose. I'm Charles too as well. Um, uh, like I said, it, I I like that it's a unique take on a classic tale without throwing away all of the trappings of that tale. Um, and you know, my family runs the gamut of. Um, <laughs> People like my son, who has a very low tolerance for horror, and my uh, daughter and wife, who has a very high tolerance for horror. And this sits in that sweet spot in between. This, like, just pushes the edge of what um, he, he's willing to tolerate, um, but it's got enough meat for them as horror fans uh, that they enjoy it. And it, so this is on our perennial Halloween list. When I went, you know... My family jokes that I'm old and I watch old movies, so they're always like, oh, dad's going to go watch one of his old movies again. So I mentioned, hey, I'm watching something for a podcast. What is it? And I said, Sleepy Hollow. And my wife said, good, we can start our Halloween watch early. And everybody <laughs> sat down and watched it with me. So, yeah, it's it's Jaws 2. I, I can relate to dad is watching old movies. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so, you know, all, all said, uh, I think you put up a uh, – a very viable defense of this movie. And I think people who understand what they're getting into and enjoy those aspects would enjoy this movie. And I would recommend it to those people. Uh, you know, I, 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 my criticism is not at any point saying this is a bad movie. So take it from there, but thanks Trey for coming on and uh, doing this. And thanks. Thank you everybody for listening. Thanks guys. I always love being here. Yeah. And you will be here a lot more. <laughs> so we'll see you next time, everybody. Van Tassel always called upon his guests to tell him ghostly tales of Halloween. And Brown knew there was no more firm, important believer in spooks and goblins than Ichabod Crane. Just gather round and I'll elucidate on what goes on outside when it gets late. Long about midnight, the ghosts and banshees, they get together for their nightly jamboree. There's things with horns and saucer eyes, some with fangs about this size. Some are fat and some are thin. And some don't even wear their skin. Oh, I'm telling you, brother, it's a frightful sight to see what goes on Halloween night. <laughs> when spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with English glee. Ghosts are bad, but the one that's cursed is the headless horseman. He's the worst. That's why he's a on Halloween night. But when he goes jogging across the land, Holding noggin in his hand Demons take one look and groan And hit the road for parts unknown Beware, take care, he rides alone And there's no spook like spooked spurs They don't like him and he's really burnt He swears to the longest day he's dead He'll show them that he can get ahead They say he's tired of his flaming top He's got a yen to make a swap, so he rides one night each year to find a head in the hollow here. Now he lies in the 
Looking for a head to swap, so don't try to figure out a plan. 